The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Good morning. This is Carol Bossert. You're listening to Museum Life, and thank you for joining me this morning. Uh, here in the United States, we are having quite an exciting time in that the uh, Pope has been uh, visiting. He's the first Pope to have visited uh, the United States in about 40 years. And yesterday, he addressed a joint session of our Congress and, among other things, talked about uh, climate change as a moral imperative. Uh, So I thought that since climate change is in the news and on our minds, uh, climate change, of course, also relates to our entire effort of uh, living sustainably on the planet or uh, using the vernacular of the day, being green. And who better to talk with us about how museums can be green and uh, develop sustainable practice and more importantly, become role models in their community for these efforts, but Sarah Sutton. Now, Sarah has been on my show before talking about her book. Uh, she is the co-author of The Green Museum. She is an independent consultant, and she helps museums and cultural institutions become financially and finan- uh, and uh, environmentally sustainable. Uh, she is also a LEED, L-E-E-D, accredited professional through the U.S. Green Building Council, and uh, she has recently uh, just published a book by uh, Rowan, uh, published by Rowan and Littlefield, uh, publishers called Environmental Sustainability at Historic Sites and Museums. So, Sarah, welcome again to the show. It's always a pleasure to have you and talk with you. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here, and I, I agree. This is a marvelous venue for pleasant conversations about the museum field, so thanks for inviting me. Well, my pleasure, my pleasure. So, uh, as I just mentioned in the intro, you have uh, recently published a new book, uh, Environmental Sustainability at Historic Sites and Museums. Uh, so, why don't you just tell us a little bit about the book? Well, I can tell you that it was absolutely the most fun book to write. The 
opportunity to talk to so many different institutions and hear their good stories about the hard but exciting work that they're doing and the great benefits they've had from it was really, really rewarding. When Elizabeth... Sorry. No, I was just going to say, uh, and and uh, I, I think you're going to talk about this a little more, but I'm assuming then that when you're talking, uh, you're talking about having museums and cultural institutions to talk talk to, which certainly wasn't the case when you uh, first wrote the Greening uh, Museums book. Exactly. When Elizabeth and I wrote that first edition of the Green Museum, about half of our examples were drawn from outside the museum field because we couldn't find them in the museum field. And then when we published the second edition just a few years later, we were thrilled that we could take out the non-museum examples and we still had more to put in. The, The book was half again as long as the first one. But during that process, we still didn't have as much to talk about at historic sites or history museums as I had hoped. And then when I was asked to write this second one, we had gotten farther along that there was enough to write about. And finally, I could tell some really great stories about historic sites, historic houses, and history museums doing good green work. That's great. Um, I, uh, as I had Frank Vagnoni and uh, Deb Ryan on the show uh, last week. They were talking. Uh, they're the authors of the Anarchist Guide to Historic Houses. And so this is a, actually a perfect segue uh, from that show into this one. You know, historic houses seem to be both a very conservative organizations. Of course, I suppose that makes sense because they are run by people who want to preserve history and uh, that is very important. But they also seem to be organizations that that uh, uh, have felt that they've had a, a difficult time balancing issues of sustainability with balancing issues of preservation. Uh, so it's great that uh, you were able to find some examples of organizations that have uh, been able to overcome that uh, dichotomy. And... Part of that process is the institution recognizing that uh, they don't have to assume it's a dichotomy. The two things can work together. Uh, With being able to look back at how a property was used historically when we weren't able to inject energy into the equation or we didn't have access to as many uh, material resources and products and machinery, the site ran differently as the historic house or the farm or the mill that it was. And thinking more sustainably often requires thinking back to original use, and it really empowers the site to go back to its roots, examine what it has as resources to offer, and then share that in a way that is so relatable to the common conversation uh, to current affairs. Too wow, yeah, you know, uh, as soon as you reminded me of that, it, 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 it seems so obvious uh, that, of course, they would uh, have, have had to live in different times and they didn't have cell phones and all of those things, but uh, I 
I must admit that when I think of how historic properties are interpreted, uh, I often don't think about them as being sort of the uh, epitome of uh, talking about sustainability. So that, that is uh, terribly, terribly interesting. Oh, I've got an example for the Minnesota Historical Society. One of my favorite sites is the James J. Hill House. And just on my private tours of it, I've been itching to talk about the design and the mechanical systems that are all uh, very sustainable from our point of view. Uh, And the staff there was interested in layering that into its interpretive story. And they're testing the theory out with the public right now, but we decided to uh, approach it from the point of view of choices because just as that lovely building is more sustainable in many ways than a current mansion, much more sustainable, uh, the act of raising all the money in order to pay for that um, 19th, early 20th century mansion came from massive resource consumption in building railroads across the country. And it's possible to have a conversation at a historic structure about sustainable and unsustainable activities in the past, translate that to the present, and have a conversation about how people and companies and governments and communities make choices about sustainable actions. That's very interesting. And certainly, uh, not only is, is does it sound as if it's a really good uh, discussion to have, but it really shifts uh, the conversation to showing uh, how we can learn from the past, which always seems to be the... Uh, uh, the holy grail, so to speak, about the uh, how we want to make history relevant uh, to contemporary audiences, particularly young people who are facing uh, issues of, of energy consumption and uh, uh, climate change uh, on a daily basis. That's a that is a a great uh, great example, and this is one that's in the book. Uh, that's actually recent work since uh, the book has been published. Wow. So it also sounds as if the the uh this book that was just published as well as uh, your your previous books are really making an impact on uh how we all think and talk about these this uh this subject that must be terribly gratifying. Well, gosh, I I hope so. There are some days when one wants to bang one's head against the desk and think, why do I bother? But uh, that only lasts a second, and you get up and you keep trying again. When I was doing the interviews for the book, I uh, uh, Linda Norris suggested that I talk to Liz Callahan at the Hanford Mills Museum in New York, and she had such a long list of great work they were doing, and they'd been doing it for a couple of years. And I said to her at the end of the interview, gosh, how did you get started? And when she answered that the board and the staff read the book, The Green Museum, in order to start them on changing their institution from top to bottom, it reminded me that this is why I do this work and that all those writing hours alone here at my desk, uh, they all matter. They all make a difference. And the field is beginning to pick up the energy and to share it with their peers and to really create some momentum. 
Well, oh, what a wonderful compliment to any author, but particularly to you, uh, because I know that you have uh, carried this torch for a long, long time, and now it, uh, it the seeds you have sown seem to be sprouting, and I just want to emphasize another thing that I heard in that, uh, uh, that story, that uh, this that the book was used not only not only did the director read the book but she shared it with her board and that uh the book provided them uh, a shared vision and a shared vocabulary uh to be able to move forward so i think that that is often something uh that we forget about uh the power of the books as being something that that uh, people can share together uh, since we started the conversation about uh, climate change with the Pope's visit uh, in Washington yesterday and uh, uh, New York today, uh, certainly the topic seems to be a little more accepted, uh, perhaps a little less politi- uh, uh, polarizing as it was, say, maybe a year ago. So based on your experience, uh, how are museums or science centers addressing their responsibility to present issues specifically about climate change? I agree, as you said, that it's less polarizing. It's certainly more prevalent as a discussion topic. It's still pretty uneven in the rollout uh, within the museum community, just as it's uneven within the uh, rollout of uh, the general American population and the global population. So there are bright spots and there are deep, dark valleys of the shadow of death where we're not making any progress. But overall, we're making some significant progress. There are great bright spots. The Wagner Institute um, in Philadelphia is nearly zero waste and they've just made a personal decision to move ahead on that issue and had great success with it. Uh, the Fitz Arboretum in uh, Pittsburgh is a stunning example of what you can do with the built environment to educate the public and significantly reduce the impact of an energy-intensive site uh, on the environment. So those are two well-known examples of good work being done. I, there's another bright spot. People worry about the city of Detroit for all sorts of good reasons, but the Detroit Zoo is a marvelous example of uh, resurrecting an in- institution and creating a conservation agency that's powerful, and they get to say that three days ago the AZA awarded them the top honor for environmental sustainability in zoos and aquariums, and that's a huge success. They've only given that award out three times in the five years of the award, and it represents an institution that's taking leadership steps to do simple but huge things like phase-out single water bottle use on-site, and then courageous adventurous things like building a dry biodigester to handle all the zoo waste. So we've got some really individual bright spots that we're proud of, but here's a a new thing I've just learned about that's much broader, and it involves the science centers. I listened to a webinar just yesterday that was sponsored by Aztec and done with Climate Interactive. And they're arranging for science centers to participate in the World Climate Project, 
where they have games. It's a role-playing game on site where you participate as if you're at the UN Climate Change Conference, like the one that starts in Paris in December. And the idea is that anyone, the public can participate, a school group, a bunch of college professors, uh, anyone can participate as if they are member countries at the UN negotiating for how we're going to manage climate change. And in the process of doing those negotiations, everyone has to develop some capacity for understanding what has to be done to create change. So when that experiment is over and they go home, their level of awareness about what this task requires is so much greater than before they walked in the museum. And now they have a resource and a connection with the museum in order to participate in that change and encourage others to do it. So there oh, what are what to a get me fabulous talking. program. Yeah, very exciting. And uh, so this was with, uh, so it was with Aztec, and that makes perfect sense. Uh, certainly this was an initiative that Walter Stavalos was uh, discussing several weeks ago, actually, when he was on the show about the trying to get science centers more in, involved and invested in taking a stand uh, about climate change. And uh, what was the other organization? Climate Interactive is the uh, delivery mechanism for the activity. Fabulous. That's very interesting. And before we go uh, to break, I'm assuming that if people are interested in this uh, program uh, further, they can uh, contact Aztec. That's the Association of Science Technology Centers here in, uh, based in Washington, D.C. Uh, or you could contact me, and I will put you in contact uh, with the organizers of that program, or contact Sarah, because I'm sure she can do that as well. It does sound as if it's a very important uh, activity that can really bring us all together, and at the time of a very important international conference that will be taking place. And while it won't be taking place uh, here in Washington, uh, that doesn't mean that it's not important. Uh, things are happening all over the world uh, that are that we need to uh, continue to be aware of. So we will take uh, first of our two breaks, and when we come back, more with uh, Sarah Sutton. Uh, I don't know about you, but I am already feeling incredibly uh, lifted up and optimistic about uh, how museums are stepping up to the plate about climate change. So we will be back in a moment. This is Carol Bossert for Museum life. Uh, Stay tuned. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Carol Bossert established CB Services LLC because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content, and at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. 
We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com. Reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn or call her directly at 240-432-7712. Are you ready for an anything-goes, hour-long foray into politics, pop culture, and societal tribulations? Then look no further than Between the Synapse with host Mark Tobin. Each show features nationally or internationally prominent guests discussing topics that go beyond the usual daily news, sometimes even way beyond. It's a weekly fast-paced hour that you won't want to miss. Call in to join the party. Between the Synapse airs live every Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert, uh, and I am here today with my friend, Sarah Sutton. And right before we went on break, Sarah was sharing with us some of the truly bright spots uh, on the horizon in terms of science centers and uh, other cultural institutions who are really doing some amazing, uh, incredible work uh, in terms of uh, education about climate change, as well as truly being models for uh, uh, being a business, uh, an organization that is working sustainably. And share, um, Sarah shared with us the wonderful news that the Detroit Zoo, an organization that she actually has been working with uh, for many years consulting on these issues, uh, just recently received the top honor for the AZA, the Association of Zoos and Aquarium, uh, on, uh, on for their, their work in sustainability. So congratulations uh, to them. Uh, they certainly are, sh- are showing that they are a model of leadership as well. Uh, so, Sarah, let's. I want to shift gears a little bit. Um, when you and I have talked uh, before, and in some of the readings, that, uh, things that I've read that you've written recently, um, you're talking about planning resilience. Uh, what what do what do you mean by that? Well, a resilient organization is one that can uh, respond in a positive manner in a quick way to any sorts of blows or change in the directions that come to them. And planning resilience means starting right now to plan for not just the disasters that could happen, but um, changes 
that occur in our environment, whether it's the, the green growing environment, whether it's the economic environment or the political one. And museums have a very, very important role to play in planning resilience for climate change events or um, cl- climate events in their areas. They are institutions that um, have great resources, physical resources, where they can simply be a place of refuge if you have a hurricane or a tornado go through. But they're also great locations for convening uh, safety professionals and planning professionals to think long-term about how will our community be safe and healthy in the face of a changed climate. Very, uh, very important considerations. And I, so if I understand you correctly, this is also, you know, we, we talk so often about museums needing to have disaster plans. Uh, if, if, um, you know, whether it's a fire or a hurricane, uh, to protect not only the staff, but to protect their, their collections and their buildings, the things that they're responsible for. Uh, but if I understand correctly, you're saying that part of that, you know, disaster planning may not necessarily be the uh, uh, acute disaster, such as a fire, but will be the planning for the longer term and unfortunately probably inevitable uh, changes that, uh, that we're going to be facing, whether it is more severe storms or sea level rise, uh, more flooding if, if we're in coastal states, uh, and also just being aware that we can talk about those things a little more effectively. Exactly. It's another example of the museum working outside its own doors um, and looking at what is important to its community and how to participate in actualizing those important goals. So if you look at it just though, if you step back and you look at it just from a disaster planning point of view, when the Whitney Museum does its redesign, it installs bulkhead doors uh, in order to protect the collection against uh, sea le- against storm events and sea level uh, incidents, if an institution steps farther outside protecting the collection and thinks about what it, does the community need in order to be safer in a storm event and what can it do, that's when truly awesome things happen. So, here's a new story. This is. Just this week, I had a discussion with Scott Medbury, who leads the Brooklyn Botanic Garden. And the garden was planning on revamping its water system so that instead of letting the water, most of which, some of which is well water and some of which is potable water purchased from the city, uh, instead of letting that run through the property and go through all the ponds and then eventually discharge into New York Harbor, wouldn't it make tons of sense to keep that water on the property to recirculate and filter it in a way that they can continue to use it instead of sending so much to the harbor? And when it got into a great integrated design planning session and they had the water engineers there and they had folks who thought about the city as a whole and about disaster situations... Somebody at the table said, what would happen if we made sure that this retention pond 
at the bottom of the 52 acres, was somehow helpful in managing combined sewage overflow issues when we had a storm. So a combined sewage overflow takes place in about 200 cities in the U.S. where when you have a really big storm event and the water is running off of the roads and the parking lots and flooding into the sewers, there will be so much sewage waste and stormwater waste mixed together that the sewage system can't handle it and it just gets dumped straight to New York Harbor instead of being processed. So how can we stop that from happening? And they came up with a way to connect that retention pond with the satellite weather data so that when a storm is coming, it is automatically triggered to release that water when it's still sunny and dry out slowly into the New York Harbor. Clean, fresh water, no problem with the water. The storm event comes and everything gets captured on site in that pond and held. And it doesn't run into the combined sewage system. There's no overflow from that particular institution. The storm passes, the sewage system recovers, and then slowly that water can be released. That's an example of awesome resilience work by an institution with their community. And what's fascinating about it is they had to pitch it to the department, um, the environment department or the planning department that was skeptical at first. But as they began to understand it, they saw what a marvelous design it was. They became huge supporters politically and financially for the project. And then a, um, a private individual stepped, stepped up to fund it multi-million dollar support for the project, which Scott refers to as basically a plumbing project. And in the past, we used to say we couldn't fund those sorts of things. But with sustainability, we can't. That is an amazing story. You're right. Awesome is the is the word for it. And and as you were talking, I was I was just thinking of how many times even on this program and also as as I go around the country talking to museum professionals, we talk about the importance of museums uh becoming a part of their community, an integral part of the community. And uh, so often uh, those discussions lead to um, uh, solutions about, well, we'll have an exhibit or we'll do something for the community. Uh, But in this instance, it sounds as if what Brooklyn uh, did, Brooklyn Botanic Garden, was, was say, well, it's not necessarily something that is an exhibit. It doesn't, it's not about our collection per se, but it is a community-wide need that we can serve. And I think that that spinning that little bit on its head and sort of recasting that, uh, is, is, is service, uh, with the community, not necessarily for the community is, is just, as you say, leads to such an amazing solution that uh, I don't think that we often think about. And that's why my job is so much fun, because great work is happening out there in the field, and it's even better work when museum colleagues work with water engineers and they work with city planners and they work with environmental communication experts. When we diversify 
the group that we work with, we come up with better plans. And our institutions benefit and all the institutions that we're working with. And every time I talk to a museum leader who's gone through this process, they've they've found a whole new value in the work that they do and in the institution's role in the community. And they they can't go back to life the previous way. No, I, I would, I would suspect, I would suspect not, and and it does come back to an, an issue that you know we sort of glossed over, maybe, uh, but but it's imp- uh, in the last section, but it's important to talk about, and that is the issue of leadership uh, in in the uh, uh, in the museum community, and and uh, it, I am heartened as well. It's uh, it, and the number of leaders who are beginning to sort of raise their heads out of the sand or look beyond the walls of the institution into the community and create these strong relationships uh, that then have benefits that are uh, just uncountable in terms of, of uh, illustrating the value of the institution. That's a fabulous, fabulous example. I'm wondering, Sarah, um, do you ever foresee a time when sustainability is actually going to be part of our best practices and our professional standards? I mean, here are these wonderful, you know, sort of beacons of light uh, that you've talked about. But as you've said before, it's sort of an uneven, uh, there's an unevenness on this topic uh, across museums over the board. Uh, so, you know, do you, do you ever think that we're going to have a, uh, you know, sort of a, a, an AAM advisory group that that re, that uh, includes this in their best uh, best practices documents. Oh gosh, I certainly hope so. Uh, and absolutely, it's starting in other places. Uh, it's not yet arrived at AAM, and I can certainly en- enlist your, the support of your callers in thinking about this topic. Uh, but I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. So let's, let's talk about where it's, where it's already happening. So the Museums Association, uh, so this is the UK Museums Association, already has uh, principles of sustainability statement, and it has a checklist that all museums can access for free online, and U.S. museums can do that as well. And they're currently issuing a new code of ethics. It's in draft state at the moment, and they've added a category on the environment. And it has two sections where it asks that the museum be sensitive to the impact of the museum on visitors and the natural environment. And the second one is where they contribute to the sustainable social and material vitality of the museum's surrounding area. That's marvelous. I'm, I was so thrilled to see that. I hope that it holds in the final version, and I hope that the U.S. can adopt aspects of that in some way. Uh, and there is some movement in the U.S. for that, for the Association for Zoos and Aquariums accreditation process for 2016. A required component is a sustainability plan for your institution. And the AZA has a marvelous recommended format in worksheet form that is 
very intuitive, very practical. It's a, a great process for thinking about sustainability planning at your site, and it's so valuable that they ask for a plan to be included at each institution that's accredited. So in 2016, that will start. Now, for the U.S., we're really talking about it at the American Alliance of Museums National Conference. For the last three years, we've had a summit on sustainability where we talked about what would it take to get, um, not what would it take to get where we're going, but what would a sustainability standard do to benefit the field. And to move, if we decided that having a standard benefits the field, and then we made that part of accreditation, that would happen because the field said to AAM, we want you to do this. So it's not that AAM has said, no, it's not going on the list. It's that the field hasn't spoken yet. And after having those three conversations uh, and feeling like we were making progress but not leaps and bounds that Sarah would hope for, uh, I felt like we ought to change the discussion a little bit. And we're going to do some four, four webinars this winter that I hope your participants, your listeners will be able to participate in to help us talk about it more. That's uh, that's great. Well, we are going to have to uh, go to break right now, but when we come back, uh, Sarah, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the webinars and provide uh, our listeners with the information as well as some of the other uh, issues and discussions that are happening at uh, both the uh, AAM's uh, Pick Green um, professional um, uh uh, committee as well as other uh, discussions that we're having uh, in museums across the country. So please stay tuned. So much more with uh, Sarah on this incredibly important topic. Uh, just before we break, let me remind you that I love to hear, listen to my listeners uh, and uh, hear from them both through email at carol.bossard at verizon.net as well as uh, through Twitter. I will apologize apologize that I have been behind on my email responses because of, of some travels uh, in the Middle East uh, recently, but I will get back to all of you, and I truly appreciate all of the uh, uh, good wishes and particularly recommendations for guests to have on this show. So uh, I do, do continue to, uh, to send those emails. We will be back in just a moment more with Sarah Sutton. So this is Museum Life for Carol. Bossert, stay tuned. Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Carol Bossert established CB Services LLC because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content, and at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify, 
shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com. Reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn or call her directly at 240-432-7712. Up Close with Chris Tinney is now on Voice America Variety. Every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. Chris brings you the thought leaders, activists, and socially responsible entrepreneurs taking action for the environment, doing business in a new way, and helping the underprivileged. Call in or listen in every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, and learn how the small decisions you make today have a big impact on our small planet in the future. Tune in to Up Close with Chris Tinney on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert, and I'm here today with Sarah Sutton. We've been talking about uh, museums and how they are addressing issues of climate change, sustainability, and as Sarah has talked about, planning resilience. And right before break, Sarah was sharing with us a series of, of planned webinars that are going to be taking place uh, here in the U.S. Uh, to, um, to talk about museums. Uh, Museums and sustainability, and Sarah, we sort of had to uh, uh, cut that short because of the break. So, could you explain a little bit more about the webinars and what they're going to entail, and how people can participate? Certainly, thank you. So, AAM is going to be our technology host, and there will be four. Uh, well, they're panel conversations, but they take place online. Uh, and they'll happen in February and March of 2016. The four groups are museum leaders, directors, uh, funders, uh, thought leaders, so people who are not necessarily in the museum field but who are very familiar with it and think about the museum field and their relationship with the world around them, and uh, whoops, I just, oh, association leaders. And all four groups will be asked to think about what is their experience with sustainability standards in other organizations or in practice in their own institution, and what value or challenge do they feel that brings to the museum field. And then 
All of those will be free broadcast webinars that uh, participants will have about 20 minutes at the end to engage in conversation with those thought leaders, those, those discussion leaders. And then if all goes well, we'll have a session at the AAM conference where each of those four discussions and the comments from the public will be represented and captured in a way that we hope can then move to, not well, maybe to accreditation, but at least to uh, articulation of expectations of performance in the field and maybe put us on the path where the field asks AAM to make a statement about sustainability on behalf of the museum profession. Very, very interesting. And, and yes, Sarah, I, you and I are cut from the same cloth in that we, uh, that patience gene just didn't get to us, but, uh, <laughs> I'm extremely impatient for, for change to occur, but, but I have learned, uh, as, as you, that, uh, change occurs when people continue to talk about, uh, subjects and more people, and it, and includes more and more people, uh, talking and listening, and I say this so many times, but I I think it's oh so true, is to create that shared vocabulary that leads to a shared vision. Uh, and it sounds as if these webinars are a wonderful opportunity. Uh, so coming uh, this February and March, and how can uh, our listeners participate? Should they go to the AAM website, or how, uh, how will they find out more about these? It, it will be promoted by AAM. Uh, and through Pitt Green, which is the Professional Interest Committee, now Professional Network on Environmental Sustainability. And I will make sure you have the information, and I, of course, will tweet it and link it and Facebook it so that everyone has a chance to participate. Because we know it's not just AAM members who have thoughts about this, and it's not just the folks who can get to an AAM meeting or also choose to go to this particular session who can participate. We need everyone, a much broader participation. So there will be a wide distribution of links to the free webinars. Oh, great, great, wonderful. And I certainly am going to put it on my calendar as well. And, of course, I'm happy to uh, forward that information uh, to all of my listeners and my followers. Uh, So let's talk about another um, potentially controversial, interesting uh, topic that is hitting, uh, certainly has been hitting universities and is now hitting museums and science centers, and that is the issue of divestment. Uh, primarily from uh, companies that profit from uh, oil and uh, and gas, um, uh, both um, carbon spewing um, uh, businesses. So, what's your what's your take on that? Well, I saw the exhibit that the Natural History Museum had at the AAM conference and immediately bought the T-shirt, interviewed all the staff, and had a marvelous conversation about the work that they're doing and about Becca's leadership in driving change around divestment. And Pick Green Group is embracing that. Um, Becca, the leader for the Natural History Museum, is a member of the uh, Pick Green Board and... uh, Her energy and enthusiasm has infected 
all of us or energize those of us who were infected and hadn't been taking action yet. Uh, Elizabeth Wiley, who is currently uh, the senior co-chair for Pitt Green, just had a nice piece in Museum, the magazine, uh, about divestment. And uh, Becca had stunning success in getting California Academy of Sciences to uh, agree to plan divestment of its uh, investments in fossil fuel type organizations. So those are those are huge successes that two years ago wouldn't even have been a discussion topic. So that's pretty pretty thrilling. And if you take it all the way back home, Elizabeth, who works at um, Andalusia Farm in Georgia, is it's a small historic site. They're starting their first endowment, and they don't have to divest because they're not going to invest right from the beginning. So it's incredibly exciting work. It's going to rush through the museum field very quickly, and anyone who isn't planning to make the change needs to do their research right now to prepare for the change. The good news is that the the financial world is already thinking about this and already has tools available and is beginning to do the work. Uh, And I can give you the personal anecdote that um, when I uh, started with new financial advisors, I told them that this was the rule for my personal investment portfolio and they said, gosh, we'll have to do some research on that. And by the time I got to them with all of the links for the background information, they said, you know, we've had another client who's asked us to do it as well. So it's really going to roll out uh, through the public as well as the institution field, and we need to prepare for it. That is very, very interesting. And and with your personal anecdote, uh, I don't know if my financial advisor is listening, but if you are, I'm making a phone call right after the show, so be prepared. Awesome, thank you. <laughs> uh, no, I, I I do think it's interesting, and uh, as as you mentioned, the California Academy of Sciences has uh, made a very formal statement, um, and uh, we will fi- actually I will find out we'll find out more next week as I have Becca on the show and uh, uh, hearing some of the the successes that this what is a relatively small grassroots organization can do. Uh, so. And I think that this entire discussion today has been about what uh, individual organizations can do by just having an audacious idea and, and pursuing it, uh, like um, removing uh, single-serve water bottles from their concessions. Uh, seems like a small thing, but such a, a very major impact. So what do you think are the biggest challenges for museums uh, who want to improve their sustainable practice? The biggest challenge is deploying time and attention. Uh, The argument about not having enough money, that's a red herring. Uh, They haven't even figured out the money before they tell us that uh, it's going to be too expensive. They haven't taken the time yet first to think about what is it that we do and how does that impact the environment and then what am I capable of doing to make a change. And it's perfectly understandable that they don't have time and attention 
to deploy because they're busy keeping their institutions up and running. I completely understand that. But if they hold to that argument, they will miss all of the opportunities to do their current work well and actually better. So involving sustainability thinking helps them use their time and attention better in the service of their institution. If you think back to the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, they were doing their work of uh, reinstalling part of the garden in a more efficient way. And by taking the time to think about how to do that really well, they got an even better project with a much better service to the institution and the community. So most of my time is spent getting new organizations to step back and think about what they already do and do well and how that affects the environment and then how to turn improved environmental practices in service of the work that they already want to do. We're all, this is a system that we're in, an environmental system, an institutional system, and understanding how it works and how it can be tweaked to work to your advantage is what this is all about not just finding more money or more time to do something additional. It's thinking differently. It's working differently. Very, very well said. Uh, and I like your uh, analogy that uh, museums are part of an environmental system. Uh, and that really does begin to change the way uh, that that we think about things. And so I'll ask you, and I'm asking everyone I meet these days, uh, if we could have a signal, you know, just among us, that when we're at a conference or a meeting or even a group discussion, when people uh, were talking about something and someone says, well, you know, there's not enough time, or well, you know, there's not enough money, or well, you know, our board is blah, blah, blah. You know, there never is going to be enough time. There's never enough money, and boards are boards. So, uh, you know, we all we need to, to hold up a proverbial stop sign. Uh, now, I don't know what the signal is. If you have the, you know, if you have the signal or one of the, my listeners has a signal, let's create this signal so that we all say, let's stop. Let's stop and, and do something uh, and realize we're part of a, uh, a system that needs to be thinking differently. Okay? Sounds like a good plan. <laughs> well, Sarah, it has been just a pleasure to have you on the show again, and I look forward, of course, to having you on the show in the future. You always have so many wonderful things to share with me. Uh, I always feel so energized and so positive about our field uh, after talking with you and, uh, and also just feeling so uh, blessed and privileged that you have chosen to put your efforts uh, uh, toward uh, the field that we all love uh, so very much, museums and cultural organizations. So, Thank you, thank you for being on the show and for doing the good work that you do. Thank you very much. It was great fun. I enjoyed talking about it, and uh, it's good work, and I'm grateful to have it. So thank you. And we will be back next week. As I mentioned, I am interviewing uh, the uh, leaders of the Natural History Museum Project. That's not the American Museum of Natural History. It's the Natural History Museum. Uh, so please, 
If you're interested in sustainability and who isn't, uh, please uh, join me for a fabulous conversation next week as well. And until then, this is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.